Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Medical textbooks are known for containing thousands of pages of description of the medical illnesses. This, of course, predated Google when now everybody has access to these things for all those unlicensed medical experts. But it's unusual to discover a new disease that hasn't been described before, except, of course, if it's a newly discovered infectious disease like the COVID SARS-2 virus. But in general, most conditions, medical conditions, have been well-defined and well-described. Or to put it as King Solomon said, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Today's topic, mast cell activation syndrome, is one of those exceptions. It was actually formally diagnosed as a disease in 2011, about 10 years ago. It has been controversial. It didn't have any specific physical or laboratory findings that distinguished it from some other related diseases. However, its prevalence now, according to recent journals, is almost 20% of the population. That's, that's a lot of disease that no one has ever heard of before. And so today, allergists, hematologists, holistic functional medicine doctors are all debating how to diagnose and treat this condition and who should be in charge of that. My guest today is Dr. Lawrence Afrin. He is an expert in mast cell activation syndrome. Dr. Afrin comes from an academic career in hematology oncology while at the University of South Carolina's Medical School, and I think later on at the University of Minnesota, both excellent institutions. And now he finds himself in Armok, New York, I believe, in a functional medicine practice, diagnosing these complex cases. I myself am very interested in learning more about this condition. I've had patients calling me up over the last year, asking me if they think they have it and how should they be treated. And I hope the listeners today will be better informed after our podcast. So it's my great pleasure to have and welcome Dr. Afrin to the podcast. Hello, Dr. Mitchell. Pleased to have the opportunity. Okay. So the first question I'm going to ask you for our listeners, uh, Dr. Afrin, most of our listeners, and many, uh, many of them at least, have never even heard of a mast cell. Can you explain why we have mast cells in our body and what's their, their function? Sure. Patients who haven't heard of mast cells shouldn't feel too bad. There are actually a lot of doctors who haven't heard of mast cells either. Out of our 10 years or so of training, Doctors typically get about one minute of education. You stole my line. I, I teach this course at the medical school, the immunology section, and I devote maybe about 10, 15 minutes to mast cells. <laughs> well, so, if, you're yeah. devoting, if you're devoting 10 minutes to it, that's about 10 times as much as <laughs> most other doctors get in their training. But um, the mast cell is an integral part of the immune system. The immune system is made up of many different types of cells. And each of these different types of cells has its own set of roles to play in uh, helping our bodies detect and uh, resist and recover from. 
the huge array of threats uh, that we face from the environment. The mast cell actually, uh, it turns out this has been figured out in the research, the mast cell actually was the original defense cell back when uh, in evolutionary times when multicellular organisms were first developing and different types of cells were developing to handle different functions in the multicellular organism's body. Well, something had to handle defense against a very toxic environment, and the mast cell actually was the original host defense cell. And okay, so let, me, time, yeah, let me ask you this, because I want to try to clarify our listeners, you know, because both of us have like immunology backgrounds, that, yes, yeah, so what you're saying, and again, I teach this to the medical students, and I try to explain to my patients, we have white blood cells in our body. Patients all know that. You know, they, when they, they get an infection, their doctor's looking at their white cell count. We also, now in the language, people understand about T cells and B cells ever since AIDS. You know, so we know that white blood cells, what in, in very medical and technical terms, part of the innate immune system, meaning it's there sort of as an initial defense although it's not as sophisticated apparently because, you know, the T and B cells have memory. That's how, again, this whole thing with COVID, that if you get an infection, your B cells produce antibodies and the T cells have all these memory things. So where does the mast cell fit in? Is it part of that sort of um, primitive immune system we call the innate immune system? And why have we heard more about it before? Because as I said, a lot of conditions now, you know, doctors, I mean, again, in my background, I mean, we know a lot of immune diseases where people are missing certain components of the white cells, you know, like phagocytes. You know, these are cells that help immediately destroy bacteria or viruses. And B cells and T cells we've heard about with the AIDS and other immune conditions. Why haven't we heard about these mast cells? Why did it get ignored? That, that's my essential question. Well, you, you've asked a couple of different questions there. Okay. The mast cell actually is part of the innate immune system, but it also does have some adaptive uh, components to it. Again, go back to evolutionary times, the mast cell was the original host defense cell. And, you know, for uh, many hundreds of millions of years, the only defense cell we had was the mast cell. So unsurprisingly, the mast cell had to pick up an awful lot of tricks to keep the multicellular organism alive as Time went on uh, through toxic environments, but over time with evolution, other defense cells that were just more specialized in certain aspects of defense evolved and um, they have persisted over time. The mast cell actually is one of the white blood cells, just like the other defense cells are. But over time, we have evolved in such a way that we just don't need as many mast cells as we need the other types of defense well, cells. The, yeah. The other thing too, it's interesting. I just want to point out to the, uh, the listeners and is that again, you know, as doctors, when we order blood tests, we get what's called a CBC, a cell count and all that stuff too. But mast cells are really in the tissue, like the nasal tissue and the skin. So is that another reason why maybe, you know, it's obviously not readily usually able to be detected in a normal laboratory yeah. test. That well, correct? that's one of the reasons. Uh, the mast cells do hang out for the most part out in the tissues. They are present in the circulation, but in extremely small numbers, probably no more than about 0.02% of 
of all its circulating uh, white blood cells are the mast cells. So when you look at a standard differential and you see like 70% neutrophils and 25% uh, lymphocytes and so on, I mean, the smallest numbers you see are like one. Well, I see. So well, let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. Okay. So just again, for our listeners, because again, this gets things getting a little technical, but like when I get a CBC and I'm looking at obviously somebody that thing and something what I'm always looking at is what's called eosinophils. That's a topic for another day, but those cells are known to be associated with allergic diseases and rarely with parasitic diseases, but that shows up in a blood. I've seen patients that have like 7% eosinophils who are highly allergic who don't have a parasite, but I've never seen in all my years a lab report, you know, one, whatever, 1% mast cells uh, on a, a blood count. Exactly. Now, you will see basophils. Is that the, is, isn't that the blood form of mast cells? Like basophils, do they become mast cells in the tissue or something? No, no. no they are, dis- they okay. are distinct cells. Uh, okay. There's some relationships to them, but they are distinct okay. cells. And the, the principal reason you don't see mast cells listed on a uh, CBC is that, again, the numbers of them in the blood are just so small. Okay. Uh, that they're just not going to show up on okay. a, a, a okay. CDC. Well, that's important because I think people, again, too, who think they have this disease, that they went to a doctor and said, I think I have, you know, I read all these symptoms we're going to get to later. I think I have a mast cell activation problem. And the doctor will say, that sounds like nonsense. And the person may say, well, check my blood. And the doctor will say, well, there's no mast cells there. So, right there. You know, but I think... I think- Well, this gets into really the heart of the biology of this disease. What's important to understand is that what makes the mast cells so capable of not only helping with host defense, but also causing so much trouble is not the number of mast cells that anybody has in their body, but rather the number and and just sheer potency of the the so-called mediators. The, yeah, so that's uh, exactly what I want to get to. Signaling chemicals right. so, uh, that, that the mast cell is able to produce and under appropriate circumstances to release um, into the surrounding tissues. And these mediators, the mast cells actually are now documented to be able to produce more than a thousand different mediators. And each of these mediators has a huge range of effects, direct effects on other cells and tissues in the body, indirect effects, sort of like domino chain effects. There are local effects in the tissue in which the mast cell has released the mediator. Yeah, I want to stop you on this because you led me right into my next question with you. Mast cells, they actually get their name from the German discovered by Dr. Paul Ehrlich, a very famous immunologist, was because they were called like in German, something like maxin, it means like like fattening because they contain all these granules So I just want the listeners to understand certain cells have a lot of what's called granules in them, which contain these chemicals that are what what Dr. Affin's explaining are the mediators. It's really funny because when I studied immunology, I thought mast cells were called mast cells because they looked a little bit like the mast on a sailboat. You know, they have that sort of 
elongated thing, but that was not correct. What I read now, it's about they have all these granules. So let me ask you about the granules because this is really I want to get into some meat and potatoes. For example, the granules contain histamine. Now, you know, again, my career as an allergist, we were always fighting histamine, antihistamines, and make people feel better. What is the purpose of histamine in our body? There must be something evolutionary important about it, otherwise we wouldn't have it. Have you given thought to that at all? Yeah, histamine's actually been studied for many decades now, and we have a pretty good idea of what histamine does. It uh, Histamine docks with the histamine receptors, and there are many different types of histamine receptors that are present on many different types of cells all throughout the body. And when histamine docks with a particular type of receptor on a particular type of cell, then one sees that cell uh, immediately start to adjust its functioning. It seems like histamine uh, is almost ways. negative. Like, is it, you know, it's something when you hear about histamine being released in the body, I'm going to get more about into mass. Thing. It all seems everything is negative about histamine. It causes sneezing, wheezing, and, and even lowering of blood pressure, et cetera. What, what is the well, benefit of histamine? No, it, it's not all negative. Histamine okay. has a number of positive effects in the body, too. For example, uh, to be able to appropriately or to optimally digest our food, we need mm, acid point. in our stomachs. Well, how is acid generated? Well, there are these specialized cells in the lining of our stomach called parietal cells. They have the ability to produce and release acid into the stomach, but what what stimulates them to produce and release acid? Well, it is the docking or the binding of histamine to a type of histamine receptor called the H2 receptor that's on the surface of the parietal cell that stimulates the parietal cell to produce and release uh, stomach acid. Another example, there are different types of histamine receptors on various types of neurons in the right, uh, central and right, in the brain nervous yeah. system. And histamine is a very important neurotransmitter. Uh, so just to jump in, is it a problem? System operating normally. Yeah. Is, is it a problem though when people then are taking antihistamines that are blocking histamine? I mean, I know they want to get relief from their allergy symptoms. Is, is there any danger in chronically being on? I mean, I know I, I don't like to use H2 blockers, you know, for the stomach because it decreases the acid that patients get some dysbiosis, you know, some problems with overgrowth of candida and stuff like that. But so is it, do you see, I mean, we're jumping around a little bit, but do you see a, an issue about someone being on longstanding antihistamine, you know, like for allergies? Is there a negative about that? Well, Dr. Mitchell, everything's a matter of dosing. Yeah, you know, uh, water okay. and air can be toxic if you get too much of them. Yeah, that's true, but okay. So in general, with the dosing that we use, for the various drugs that make sense to try for this disease, we tend to see helpful effects with minimal to no adverse effects. 
What about heparin? You know, I know that's also in mast cells because, you know, we know that's for thinning the blood. You know, we tend to think of heparin as doctors giving it when people have a clot somewhere, but the mast cells contain heparin. Why do do they contain heparin? What is that, you know? Well, heparin, as you pointed out, is a blood thinner. It's an anticoagulant. It prevents blood clotting. And the mast cell is just about the only type of cell in the human body that can make heparin. And we do have times when, due to various injuries of the body, we um, become at risk for developing blood clots that can impede the flow of blood and, and be harmful. And we have to have ways of opposing the development of blood clots and heparin uh, is one of the mechanisms um, that can help keep the balance there in the in the uh, the coagulation system. Mm. So that's what, okay. So that's why we had the muscles have them. So that's is it very interesting. So that probably activates the whole clotting or breaking up of clot system. Okay, I want to move on because this is what I find fascinating. I want to know about your story in in with involved with mast cell activation syndrome. Now, as you mentioned, you know, doctors typically get, we, we, I had it down as a half hour, then I knocked it down to 10 minutes and you've knocked it down to one minute <laughs> on mast cells because it usually revolves about mast cells and how they're involved in allergic reactions. But what got you interested in mast cells? Because you're a hematologist and uh, typically hematologists have a lot on their plate. They're dealing with a lot of blood cancers, which are quite serious, you know, solid cancers, so maybe you could tell your story a little bit, and, and obviously it probably relates a little bit to your book, Don't Bet Against Oakum, which we'll talk about that very unusual esoteric title. But how did you get involved, again, if you can sort of describe what led you to getting, become, you know, getting more involved in this field? Well, um, as is not uncommonly the case uh, with these sorts of things, it was a strange situation with a patient, uh, a puzzle that came to me one day, uh, a lady who had been given a, a certain hematologic diagnosis that really did not well explain the wide range of troubles she was having. And she got treated for that diagnosis and was not getting better. And um, she eventually, after a few years, came for a consultation, uh, a second opinion. And About her hematological problem? Was that the reason you were, got involved? Yes. Okay. Um, what did she have? Did she have polycythemia vera? You know, when you she, had been, she had been diagnosed by uh, another hematologist as having polycythemia vera. But right. And you said, well, I'm a hematologist. I know that disease pretty well. And it only took about a minute in the exam room taking her story to to realize she really couldn't possibly have polycythemia vera or PV because PV just doesn't behave in the way that her disease process had been behaving for many years. I mean, there was no question that she had more red blood cells, at least back at the beginning of her disease process, than she should have. But not every elevation in red blood cell counts is necessarily PV. Right. Now, a lot of those patients are asymptomatic. I mean, they may develop medical problems, but a lot of them, a lot of their life, 
are asymptomatic. They don't have, as but, you'll describe. But, but even, if, even if a PV patient is symptomatic, they just don't have the symptoms that this woman had. Right. And so the question right. became, what do you have that not only can drive the modest elevation in red blood cells that you had back at the beginning of your disease process, but also is causing these many, 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 many other problems that you developed. And I'll spare you the long story, but after close to a year of extensive investigation, I I, I had been kind of smelling, for lack of a better word, smelling a mastocytosis-like disorder to her ever since the first visit. But in all the testing I had done for that one mast cell disease, which at the time was really the only mast cell disease we knew of, this rare disease of the mast cell called mastocytosis that's really a cancer of the mast cell, all the testing I did, I couldn't find any mastocytosis in hers, but it just kept smelling and feeling like the way that mastocytosis behaves. And so I ruled out other diseases that can cause elevated red blood cell counts. I ruled out a lot of other diseases too. And I just kept reading more and more about mast cell biology and disease that I had not been taught in training. What year was this, by the way? I'm just curious, roughly, because uh, as you said, it was eight. So it was really a little bit before they came out with the uh, the mast cell formally, like the no, mast cell no, activation. No, no, sir, you you were no. just a little bit off of that 2011 okay. estimate. Um, it was actually in the 1980s when really? there were the first publications hypothesizing mm. that there ought to be a disease of the mast cell related to uh, inappropriate activation of the mast cell, kind of complementing the cancerous disease of the mast cell that we already knew about called mastocytosis. But it wasn't until 2007 that we saw the publication of the first case reports of what is now called mast cell activation syndrome. And a year later, 2008, is when I worked out a diagnosis of MCAS in my first patient. I wasn't aware at the time of those case reports from 2007. I think it was like 2009 or 2010 before I found those case reports. And I realized, oh, this is what I found. Um, And I actually had called my first uh, patient or two uh, a case of atypical mastocytosis because I didn't know what else to call them back at the beginning. Mm. So in this lady, I was learning more and more from reading just because I was suspecting mastocytosis, but it clearly was not a typical case of mastocytosis. And so I was reading more and more about mast cell biology and disease and learning more ways to detect the presence of mast cells and their activity. And it is, I'll be the first to acknowledge, it's its not easy doing this testing. There are a lot of nuances to doing it right. And if you don't do it right, it's pretty easy to get falsely negative test results. But 
ultimately, after straightening out all the problems, um, I finally found the laboratory evidence of um, mast cell activation in her and then uh, did a little bit more testing, kind of shored it up. And at that point, I was pretty sure I had a situation of, again, the best I knew to call it at the time was atypical mastocytosis. Well, that that was like very unique. So let me ask you this, because we are going to get into the laboratory stuff. This is all very important. But what I'd like to know, and I, as I said, I read your book and the, you know, like even that, that first patient who you call, quote, Shelly, it was a two years worth of, of basically looked like medical notes. And so if you could share with the listeners and for myself too, from obviously there's, there's such a wide range of symptoms these patients have that it, it looks like it, it could masquerade as many other conditions. And of course it frustrates doctors like crazy. They don't like when some patient has like 14 different symptoms which these patients can have. So if you had to distill into your essence, what, you know, that you start to get a feel now, because I'm sure you get a quote from a patient saying, I think I have mast cell activation system. I doubt you're getting too many doctors referring you them because now with your reputation. But so when you get a patient, if you're even screening them on the phone or till they get in the office, what are you able to give me a few sure. signs sure. or symptoms that start to really set off the, the, the you know, the flashlight? Well, what you're looking for is kind of the the overarching description, the the hundred thousand foot view mm-hmm. of this disease, and it, it honestly took me the first few years of seeing many of these patients, uh, each of whom individually, at a superficial level, looked quite different from one another with uh, different, very different assortments of symptoms. But over time, you start to piece together this overarching picture. And I've come to describe it as a chronic multi-system illness. And it's important, those words are important, chronic, because it absolutely is persistent. This is not something that just comes on briefly and then it goes away and you're done with it. This is a chronic and it is absolutely multi-system. It commonly affects the GI tract, the uh, central and peripheral neurological systems, the uh, cardiovascular system. Let's, let's talk specifics because, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to, you know, let's say, when you say, let's say, like, with the, the GI, right. so these patients I, get reflux. And I'm happy to get into that, but I think it's important to just start okay. with the overarching description okay. of this right. as a chronic multisystem yes. illness of general themes. Mm-hmm. Of, and, and there are three principal themes here. Number one, inflammation. Uh, and inflammation in different systems in the body can actually manifest with very different symptoms. But in general, the themes are inflammation plus minus allergic type phenomena. And I say plus minus because there are plenty of mast cell patients who don't have a speck of allergy to them and others who have unbelievably severe allergic issues, and then everybody else is kind of in between those two polar opposites on the allergy spectrum. And then there's one more plus minus theme to this, and that's a plus minus uh, what we call dystrophisms or, or abnormalities in growth and development 
in potentially oh, that's very interesting. in oh. potentially any tissue in the body. And fortunately, most of these abnormalities in growth and development are benign, but occasionally they can. Can you give me an example of that? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I just don't know what you mean by that. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, there's a abnormal development of what? Well, for example, it's very common in mast cell patients to see cysts uh, arise in places where they shouldn't be, like uh, breast cysts or ovarian cysts or liver or uh, pancreatic or lung cysts. It's uh, common to see fibrosis and scarring where there shouldn't be. It's common to see... Um, abnormalities in uh, blood vessels, blood vessel development, uh, just unusual formations of blood vessels um, in various places in the body. That would, to me, would be a very good tip. I mean, it's that kind of subtle, you know, because the allergic part people might get, the inflammation people can get. And obviously, when you're saying about this chronic multi-system disease, you know, I see a lot of patients with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, candida overgrowth. I mean, honestly, they could be very similar in presentation to some of these mast cell activation syndrome patients, but maybe I have not recognized this myself. I mean, it's, uh, but I like the idea. It's quite interesting about the, the cyst because again, yeah, mast cells have to do with healing of tissue, correct? So maybe there's some... Right. We've we've been learning in the last 15, 20 years that mast cells actually are integral to the growth and development of all tissues in the body. So as long as the mast cells are putting out the right growth guiding mediators in the right amounts, right times, right durations, right places in the body, then growth and development proceeds normally. This is not to say that the mast cell is solely responsible for guiding growth, but it nevertheless is an integral part of the overall assortment of systems that guide growth and development. So if you have some dysfunctional mast cells, that are chronically putting out various growth-guiding mediators, but they're the wrong mediators, wrong amounts, wrong times, wrong durations, wrong places in the body, nobody would be surprised if you started getting some instances of inappropriate growth and development. And you're right uh, that healing of tissue is one aspect of tissue growth, and it is very common for mast cell patients to have poor healing. You know, the skin is also another area, which obviously I was always on the lookout because in mast cell activation could maybe explain a lot of things because the skin obviously is so visual, it's easy to see, and things like urticaria or hives flushing i'm always like concerned about like why a patient's getting a flushing syndrome and itching which can drive people crazy and so a lot of times again these are all things that tend to fall into that quote idiopathic the doctor's the idiot we don't know why this is going on and you know we're going to get into this later how mass cell activation along with some other you know environmental or you know medication could could trigger this so and and, and again also as you know you know with um, with certain forms of mastocytosis, there's cutaneous skin forms where they get those nevi, little lesions, those little brownish lesions, right, that, that you know, tip off, but that's mastocytosis. Do you see that with mast cell activation syndrome where they usually have no 
type of lesions like that on the skin? Um, it, it is common for folks with mast cell activation syndrome to have any of a, a wide assortment of lesions on their skin, but it's usually not the specific types of lesions we see in the various specific forms of cutaneous mastocytosis, which have been defined. And instead, it's common to see rashes of various sorts that kind of uh, they come and go redness that just come and go. They come and, and go, right? Mm -hmm. About different parts of the patient's body. Right. Probably one of the most common things we uh, see in terms of skin findings in folks with mast cell activation disease is something we call dermatographism, where uh, just yes. a light scratch yes. on the patient's skin very quickly brings up a bright, usually a bright red, but occasionally a bright white uh, track along the skin in the, in the path of the scratch, and it usually persists for an unusually long time, um, in some mast cell patients, the dermatographia can persist even for 15, 20, 30 minutes, sometimes an hour or more in the severe patients. Many of these patients, of course, learned this trick, so to speak, about themselves very early in life. And it was one of the... Um, the things they showed off in early in grade school right. to their friends. Right, Look, right. A simple scratch. A simple scratch, right, would set it off. It's interesting you say that, too, because one of the first things I learned in my allergy fellowship, you know, because we did mainly skin testing, and now I do mainly blood testing, but the first thing we were taught to do before subjecting somebody to skin testing was to stroke their back, like with a, the back of a tongue blade, which is blunt, and if they wheeled up within uh, within a few minutes, I typically say I could write their name on their back. Then we know we had a highly high histamine level in the patient, as you described, dermatographia. And in those cases, skin testing is not valuable because those patients just react to everything. There's no discrimination whether it's the real allergen or it's not. But that's a fascinating connection to me now. Like, you know, for decades, as doctors, we'd say, oh, you have dermatographism. It's a benign condition. But you obviously, if you scratch yourself, you're, you're, you're going to release histamine much easier. But now I'm looking at this in a different light. Maybe that is a, a form of a mild mast cell activation issue, you know? Because those patients, they know if they take a hot shower or sometimes if they drink alcohol, those things will release the histamine very easily. Well, it's, it's not just histamine. It turns out there are many other mediators, oh, too. You have to ask yourself, if you see a, a path of bright redness uh, lighting up in the track of a scratch, I mean, what's really happening mm -hmm. to produce that redness? Well, the only way to get that is for there to suddenly infuse uh, or, or perfuse into that area of the skin a much greater number of red blood cells. So the blood vessels that are carrying the blood in that area of the skin have to acutely dilate to allow more red blood cells into that area of the skin. And the mast cells actually contain a variety of mediators which can very potently dilate blood vessels. And let me just point out that they also contain mediators, which under certain conditions can very potently constrict 
blood vessels. But in this particular situation, they are dilating the blood vessels. And I think this also gives us the opportunity to point out an important part of the anatomy of this disease. I mean, where are the mast cells in the body? You're right that they're mostly out in the tissues and not so much in the blood. But in most tissues in the body, they're pretty sparsely distributed. But where they're dominantly sighted is at the environmental interfaces, so the skin, as you pointed out before, the GI tract, the respiratory tract, and the genitourinary tract. But the other place where the mast cells are dominantly sighted is in the walls of all vessels in the body. Well, I want to get to that too, because do you find, I want to explain this to the listeners, because, you know, again, you, you do this very eloquently, and again, as a doctor, I'm, I'm following everything you're saying, but, you know, what, you're going to get to the, my next thing. Do you find a lot of the patients have low blood pressure? Because, again, as you're saying, the walls of the vessel, the mast cell is being activated, it releases histamine, which can lower blood pressure. Do, do you find, does that, like, does that alert you sometimes, especially in men? Because women tend to run lower blood pressures than men in general, but if you had a, a gentleman that came in, had dermatographia, had flushing, had itching. Would that another thing that would set off the bells? Would the patient tend to have like a low blood pressure, like 95 over 70 for a man? Do you see that? Well, low blood pressure is commonly seen, but this is an opportunity to point out that the range of mediators in these cells and, and, and the range of effects seen with these mediators is so vast that this disease often confounds doctors and patients because of the opposites that present not only among different patients, but even within the same patient. So I'll give you just a quick a couple of examples. That first patient we were describing in a moment ago had too many red blood cells and I've run into many other mast cell activation syndrome patients who have too few red blood cells. And there are patients who have low blood pressure. There are other patients that have the opposite problem of too high blood pressure. And then there are the many patients who actually have substantial variability in their blood pressure. So at one moment, it may be low. And 30 seconds later, it may be quite high and they are bouncing back and forth between high and low blood pressures. That's very interesting. Quickly. That's, that's very interesting. Okay. You know, I'm going to tell you a quick story also because it's going to lead into our next thing. Uh, I was at a wedding two years ago and it was at like the cocktail part and, you know, everybody's making, making small talk, which is not one of my uh, favorite things, but Somebody introduced me to another physician at the wedding who turned out to be an orthopedist uh, up in New England. And so we're just chatting for a few minutes. The doctor's, you know, it's just somebody to talk to. And when he heard that I was an allergist, he got very interested. <laughs> he started saying to me, you know, uh, can I tell you about my, uh, my case? I said, sure, you know, why not? And he started to tell me that, you know, he's an orthopedic surgeon and for many years, he had itching. You know, typically didn't bother him too much. He lived with it. He took antihistamines. But, you know, occasionally, it would be quite severe. So I said to him, did you get checked for latex allergy? He said, yes, not a problem. I was checked. You know, that wasn't an issue. Because, and then on top of, you know, and the itching sometimes would be a problem. You know, when he's in the OR, he was, you know, uncomfortable. 
you know, you felt like scratching and, you know, you're under gown and hood, you know, and everything like, you know, with masks, you can't be scratching away. And then he had to me say, I also always had bowel issues. I just bloating. I just didn't, sometimes I would eat a meal and I didn't feel good. He says, and I went to a lot of different allergists. Nobody helped me. He says, finally, I went up to somebody in Boston. I assume, I think I know who it is at Harvard. And because they diagnosed me with mast cell activation syndrome. I said, do you mean mastocytosis? He says, no, mast cell activation syndrome. So that was two years ago. That was my first medical uh, history with that. Because I had seen, you know, sometimes out of the holistic literature, people were talking about it, and I didn't know if it had validity. But he was a very legitimate case. So my question to you is, so we started talking also because he started talking about a lot of foods that he wasn't allowed to eat. So I'm curious if we could transition over to about what, you know, what triggers these mast cells to overreact and, and starting with the diet. Because I also am getting calls from patients who call me up say, oh, you know, uh, do you deal with the low histamine diet or I'm on the low histamine diet? What's your, your feelings about that? Do you feel that that is an important contribution? And we'll talk about the specific foods. And, and do you actually even challenge patients to eat those foods before you evaluate them? Well, you've asked a couple of very different questions here. First, I guess of all, that's my that's asked, my that's my technique. <laughs> yeah, first of all, you ask what seems to drive this disease at its core. Right. Separately, you asked about a low histamine diet, and let let me answer the second question first. Okay, sure. It's been my observation uh, across the uh, actually many thousands now of. MCAS patients I've tended to in the last dozen years that in some patients, certain diets actually do prove helpful. And in many patients, no particular diet really seems to make a difference. Uh, diet is as much an intervention to be tested in the individual patient as any medication is. And we tend to find pretty quickly whether a given diet is going to be helpful or not. And after roughly a month's trial, if a given diet is not obviously producing significant benefit in at least some of the patient's symptoms, then it's probably not going to help and it should be ditched and we should consider what else to try next, whether it's a different dietary intervention or another medication well, or so could, on. So could these that, foods be pharmacological in the sense that, I mean, if you're eating spinach, eggplant, tomatoes, you know, these are the, some of the foods that I have, avocado, that are the list high histamine foods, you know, that I've, I've read some articles on flushing syndromes they tell people to avoid. I mean, uh, again, the, it's different for different patients, sure. Dr. Mitchell. There are yeah. plenty of mast cell patients who can eat all the histamine-containing foods in the world, and it just will not have okay. any significant effect okay. on them. And okay. others who are remarkably... Well, uh, what I'm asking you is, do you, let's say a patient comes into you, do you at least say, let's do a month of this, or you, I mean, do they have to figure it out themselves, essentially? Like, what's your uh, approach? I, well, we're heading off in a whole other different direction now about the therapeutic management well, it's heading of there, this but, disease. Yeah. So we'll, let's get, let's, to, uh, yeah, we'll get, get that in a minute. That in a moment, but yeah. I'd like to circle back to the first question okay. of what's really driving this disease, because this yeah. is important. Okay. Um, I, I know that there is some thinking out there, uh, some publishing that is suggesting that um, this disease in, in many patients is simply uh, the, the mast cells are normal mast cells that are just 
normally reacting to something in our environment, and it usually goes unsolved, the, the mystery of what it is the mast cells are reacting to. But actually, the, the research that has been done in this area to date is strongly suggesting, and again, this is just preliminary research so far. It needs to be confirmed, but but what I've read so far looks pretty convincing that the great majority of folks who we find actually do have a mast cell activation syndrome, it seems to be that there are mutations in various regulatory genes inside their mast cells, not all their mast cells, but a portion of their mast cells. And it's it's the mutations in these regulatory genes that are leading their uh, these dysfunctional mast cells to misbehave and to produce and release various mediators in inappropriate fashions. Now, to be clear, these mutations are not inborn. They're not congenital. They're not inherited. They are acquired at various stages in a patient's life, typically beginning fairly early in a patient's life. And typically that leads to just modest misbehavior of the mast cells. But over the course of a patient's life, more mutations are acquired in steps or stages. And over time, the mast cells come to misbehave more and more. And and by producing and releasing more and more of these, again, very potent mediators, the symptoms um, magnify and expand and amplify and become more profound and more yeah, let me so answer this because you say because you say it's environmental. I mean, this is an important point because you say it's not genetic. So, with things like like mold or biotoxin exposures, or I've seen some articles where they say electromagnetic radiation, like from cell phones. Do you think that could induce the mutation, or is that? Do you actually ever find that that's a trigger in some of your patients? Yeah, I I think we don't really have clear answers on that yet. I think we do know that there's a very wide range of environmental factors that have potential to trigger the activation of mast cells, but we're still missing an awful lot of the specifics, the details that are needed to really understand what can and what cannot trigger the mast cells. But you've taken care of a lot of patients. I, I will ask you this, though, because, I mean, I know, I know you, as I said, you have an academic background, but you've also treated a lot of these patients. So I, I was just curious, have you ever had a case where you're like, geez, this really, you know, this patient was living in a moldy house, and once they moved or whatever, you know, I mean, I have that in my own practice. Well, there, again, any, any dramatic cases you remember? Well, that, well it goes back to the history. I mean, keep in mind, the mast cell developed as a defense mechanism. Right. And the mast cell for hundreds of millions of years was our principal defense against uh, infections. And molds are just one type of infection. And so the mast cells have gotten pretty good over time at sensing 
the presence of, frankly, a wide variety of microorganisms, not just molds, but bacteria and viruses. And they not only can sense the presence of the organism itself, but but the products of the organism. So when a when when a patient is being triggered by living in a in a moldy house, it's really not so much that that they are infected by the mold, that the mold in the the walls or or the building materials necessarily invaded into their bodies. Right. But rather that the what we call the antigens, the chemicals that are being shed by the mold and the bacteria and the viruses are getting into the air and circulating and uh, inflammation on the patient's skin or being inhaled. Right. And the mast cells are detecting those antigens and are being triggered and reacting. It's inflammation, essentially what you're saying. I mean, it's right. It's like, it is in some form of an inflammatory response. It's it's the body's defense against. Yes. uh, But you have to distinguish between the normal inflammatory response and an abnormal inflammatory response. Right. Most people with a healthy immune system, they can be in a moldy house and they are not going to react to it. Yeah, that's true. But what I'll just jump in because I'm kind of a little bit you know, I have background in that. A lot of that also is actually, believe it or not, that is genetic. You know, we know that there's certain HLA types and, you know, that's, that's another whole issue. But let me ask you about this too. What about medications? You know, and I, you know, I find this fascinating because, you know, some people can tolerate opiates, you know, if they have a Tylenol number three with codeine, if they have a dental infection or anesthesia or even non-steroidals. But these are some of the triggers from patients that have mast cell activation syndrome, correct? I mean, is there, is, again, is that a pattern? Like if you... Yeah, there are a, a fairly small uh, number of drug classes that just naturally have the ability to trigger the activation of mast cells. So almost all narcotics or opioids just naturally are triggers of mast cell activation. Some opiates are much more egregious offenders in that regard. Others are more mild. But to one degree or another, almost all opiates are triggers there are some people in whom the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or naproxen or aspirin just naturally are triggers. There are certain antibiotics, there are certain anesthetics that are just naturally triggers of mast cell activity. Right, the mast cell destabilizers, right. And this is even people who have totally normal mast cells. Right, um, right. right. But the fact is that when a mast cell patient is having an adverse reaction to a medication product that they're newly trying, actually the great majority of those scenarios, it's not the drug that is triggering the patient's dysfunctional mast cells to further activate and further spew out all these potent mediators that are causing all the symptoms. And rather, it's almost always one or more of what we call the excipients, the fillers, the binders, the dyes, the preservatives. It's almost always one or more of the excipients that is triggering the patient's dysfunctional mast cells 
to adversely react. So I counsel all my mast cell patients that when they're trying a new medication product and right out of the starting gate, within the first few doses, they start having an adverse reaction. And especially if the drug in that product ordinarily is a pretty well-tolerated drug, which actually is the case for just about all the drugs that make sense to try for this disease, that's exactly the scenario where you've got to be awfully suspicious of excipient reactivity. And given that step number one in managing this very complex disease is for the patient to identify their triggers as precisely as they can and do their best to avoid them, I counsel all those patients that this situation of a medication product reaction is an ideal learning opportunity. You don't give up on the drug just because they had an adverse reaction to the first formulation of that drug that they or the pharmacist randomly pulled off the shelf to try. You have to work with the pharmacist. Yeah, you stop taking the product because it caused a problem, but you don't give up on the drug. You, you work with the pharmacist. You look at the ingredient well, list. This, you bring up such an important point. I'm going to interrupt you because you, you know you bring up a critical point, and I see this a lot with antibiotics, that, of course, when a patient has an adverse reaction to a drug, the first thing everybody labels is, is allergic reaction, which everybody is afraid of because I want to distinguish now for the listeners. When you have a true allergic reaction, it's what they call IgE-mediated, meaning that the immune response recognizes this allergen and if it's to see it again it can respond even faster and stronger quote like in an anaphylactic reaction but what you're describing and this is really important is that it's really what i learned in my fellowship training because but they just didn't understand it very well then because they used to call a type one allergy and type two type one allergy was very well understood it was with ige binding to specific allergens like pollen or you know an antibiotic you know because they have mold-based or a cat dander or food. And again, God forbid you were to repeat that that exposure or ingestion, you would have definitely the reaction would happen again. You know, it was scientific and maybe more severe. But what you're saying, and I want the listeners to understand, with these mast cells, because this is how I'm starting to see it now clearly, it really is falling under what we would learn years ago, this type two allergy, which we didn't really understand very well, but the mast cells, it's also more quantifiable, right? Because it's almost like saying, I mean, for example, strawberries are, have, we're always known, like people that had hives not to take because they destabilize the mast cells, you know, because of the binding. But sometimes if you had just a small amount, you would not get a release of all those mediators. Uh, it really had to do with quantity. So I, I think I'm hopefully clarifying what you're saying also that with these medications, I think it's very important because again, too, one person, I've had this with patients that come to me, oh, I have multiple anesthesia allergy and I have to have an operation. I can't, they're all afraid to give me anesthesia. And I'm sure this kind of case would even probably come across to you. So where you're left with, did they really have quote allergic reaction or was it essentially a mast cell activation reaction that we can work around? Am I saying that properly? Um, no, yeah, I think we're talking about <laughs> largely the same thing. Okay. I mean, we, we do use words um, to try to distinguish somewhat from allergy, words like intolerance. Oh, I hate uh, that word. <laughs> which is, you know, generation of various, you know, uncomfortable or disturbing symptoms which don't necessarily rise Danger, to the you know, severity of what you right. see with allergy or anaphylaxis. Right. 
But I think patients need to be aware that when they take a given medication product, it's virtually never the case that the sole ingredient in that product is the drug. The, the, the drug is just one of probably a dozen or more ingredients, and all of the other ingredients, the so-called excipients, the fillers, the binders, the dyes, the preservatives, it is common for folks with mast cell activation syndrome to develop intolerances, sometimes even true allergies, but, but at least intolerances to one or more of these excipients. And therefore, oh. I counsel my yeah. mast cell patients that when they have an adverse reaction to an ordinarily well-tolerated uh, drug, they really need to think about this possibility of excipient reactivity, and they should work with their pharmacists to yes, look yes, at the ingredient list, yeah. mm -hmm. try to identify which excipient is probably the troublemaker, the trigger, and then try to identify an alternative formulation of this same drug, same dose, that just does not contain the suspected offending excipient. And if they try that formulation, kind of regardless of whether it's a commercially available alternative formulation or worst case, uh, go off to the compounding pharmacist and have a new formulation custom yeah. made. But either way, you try a new formulation. Right. And if you have a better experience with that product, then you just proved it's yeah. not the drug that's the problem. It's the excipient, and because some of these excipients get used in hundreds or even thousands of different medication products, it's enormously useful information to identify that you are reactive to a certain excipient, because then you and your pharmacist can make sure for the rest of your life that you never again yeah. get exposed to any products, right. any formulations yeah. that contain that excipient. Yeah, I tell my patients, you really, they need to, you know, especially who are involved in these kind of issues, that you have to really be a good detective. You know, I, I try to be a detective for them, but they ultimately have to be their own best detective as they, um, it obviously involves them. All right, let's move on to something to now, which again, for a long time was very controversial. These tests are not quite ordinarily ordered by most doctors, even specialists, um, but the tests that are routinely ordered or that you should use to try to evaluate mast cell activation syndrome. So if you could touch on, I'll just mention a couple of them, but it maybe explain them, you know, about triptase levels. I know this is going to get a little technical for our audience now, but, you know, you know, the prostaglandin D2 and the urine, you know, are these like, you know, can you go through what, what are essential tests for you to try to confirm for yourself and, and to explain to the patient that you think that they do have mast cell activation syndrome? Well, it, it, it's, you know, quite the battery of tests that need to be done. I don't know we've got time to go well, through. I think about six or seven. Of that. Well, okay. let, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me start just by discussing some, some key points regarding an important test you brought up, something called the triptase level. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand that for many years, it used to be thought 
that tryptase was an excellent marker of mast cell activation and that you really just could not have any sort of mast cell disease unless the tryptase level were elevated. And we've now learned that's not the case at all. Tryptase, as it turns out, is a great marker of how many mast cells you have in you. So if you have a the, the type of rare mast cell disease that we call mastocytosis, you know, a cancer of the mast cells, then the tryptase level almost always is going to be strongly elevated. But when you have a relatively normal number of mast cells in your body, and instead the problem you have with your mast cells is, there, is that they're getting inappropriately activated, then because you've got a relatively normal number of mast cells in you, the tryptase level in you is also going to be pretty normal. In fact, repeated studies have shown that about 85% of all mast cell activation syndrome patients have a normal tryptase level, and it's persistently normal even when they're having a flare of activation-driven symptoms. Well, let me ask you about that. Well, okay, because I, I want to bring this up because I think it's really important. Okay, so like what you're saying, because you know, on my board exams, they used to always ask this. Okay, so in massive psychosis, you do expect to have al- elevated tryptase levels, specifically, I think, beta tryptase levels. Now, in anaphylaxis, they love to ask this on uh, immunology board exams. You know, for example, if you were working in the emergency room and a patient presented in anaphylaxis, they, you know, again, or in studies, they typically would draw the blood immediately because it would only be good. Uh, I think it actually, I'm trying to remember, I think it lasts for about six hours that it had to be done quite quickly. You could, you know, otherwise you miss that window, but that would typically show if a patient had elevated tryptase levels, obviously confirming anaphylaxis, even though clinically you could see that. But if it went down after, then that would rule out mastocytosis. And I have to tell you, vice versa, now, my allergy academy is always recommending every patient that presents with anaphylaxis, especially venom-related ones, should be evaluated for mastocytosis. And, and that's all appropriate, but I think okay. it's important to understand that while a normal tryptase level, or perhaps even just a minimally elevated tryptase level, mm-hmm. goes a long way toward ruling out mastocytosis, it doesn't even begin to rule out the possibility of a mast cell activation syndrome. And again, about 85% of all MCAS patients have a normal tryptase level, even when they're having a flare of disease. I long ago lost count of the number of MCAS patients I've seen who even in flagrant anaphylaxis have a totally normal, totally stable tryptase level. What about what you mentioned about that 20% rise, even if it's normal plus two? Do you yeah, still that, give credence that, to that? Yeah, there, there is an older set of proposed diagnostic criteria for MCAS in which those authors proposed that finding a rise in the tryptase level of 20% or more above a baseline level obtained when the patient is at an asymptomatic state, mm. that that should be the sole uh, diagnostic uh, laboratory criterion 
for diagnosing mast cell activation syndrome, but it turns out there are a lot of problems with that criterion. And I and a number of co-authors have published about this. There was a major paper in the journal Diagnosis just a couple of months ago that looked at this issue and, and a number of other issues with that older set of diagnostic criteria and proposed mm-hmm. a, a newer set of diagnostic criteria. So I, I, I think that you find that 20% rise in the tryptase level in a tiny fraction of the total patient population that truly does have a mast cell activation syndrome. So tryptase can be helpful in a small fraction of MCAS patients, but for the most part, no. And and by the way, there's another condition related to tryptase that we've learned about in just the last few years called hereditary alpha tryptasemia that even further substantially complicates the interpretation Mm. of tryptase levels and we don't have time to get into that right now. But just one quickly though, but don't these patients have beta? But don't these patients have elevated beta versus that alpha or no? It, it's not it's entirely hard to, it's, hard to, it's hard to get that. I can tell you that also. So, I mean, like, so getting a tryptase level is hard. <laughs> in, in practice, yeah. because only about 15% of MCAS patients do have an elevated tryptase level, in practice, there are a number of other mediators besides tryptase Mm -hmm. uh, that we need to measure the level of in attempting to define the presence of a mast cell activation syndrome in the given patient. Now, let's keep in mind, again, these cells produce and release more than a thousand mediators, but the great majority of these mediators presently are not measurable in any clinical laboratory. We can measure them in the research laboratory. That's how we know they exist, but they they are not yet measurable in the clinical laboratory. And of the minority of the mast cell mediators that we can measure in the clinical laboratory, the majority of those are not particularly specific to the mast cell. So for example, I can measure in the clinical laboratory the level of an important inflammatory mediator called interleukin-6. If I find an elevated level of IL-6, then I know the patient is having a lot of inflammation. And the mast cell does make a lot of IL-6. The problem is that a lot of other cells also make a lot of IL-6. So in the end, I am left with only about 10 of these 1,000 mediators, which I can measure in the clinical laboratory at present and which are fairly specific to the mass. So what what are these? So I'm saying like, I know there's urinary prostaglandin D2. Tell us, that's what I'm interested in. So prostaglandin D2 is one of them. There's a metabolite of prostaglandin D2 called 2,3-dinor-11-beta-prostaglandin F2-alpha. Oh, okay. Measure. There's histamine. There's the metabolism. Well, okay, so, okay, so let's slow down. So histamine in the blood, which we know is very transient in the blood. But so you do look at a blood histamine level. Like if it's, I've seen like in some papers, maybe it was one of your, I think it was one of your cases. Like so if somebody had a, a histamine of 20 
that would be of interest to you versus because the normal range is zero to 50. Is that correct? Well, it depends on what the normal range is. Right, but I'm saying the range is zero to eight. Different yeah. normal ranges. But right. if the normal range, uh, I mean, for one of the commonly used assays for plasma histamine, yeah. the normal range is zero to eight. Yeah. So a level of 20 would be significant. Now, that would be important. Let, okay. let, let's be clear. Yes. This is a very complex yeah. Highly variable disease. Of course. Behavior. Yeah. So I myself am very reluctant to make a, and this is an important well, But do you order these too. tests on your patients? That's what yes. I'm asking. I, I do order I'm these I'm saying, tests. you know, like, with, with like, look, I, I really want to be clear about this. So it's like if people are coming to you and they want to get some supportive evidence versus just your clinical judgment, which is obviously extremely important, but if they say, look, or do you order tryptase levels, urinary prostaglandin D2? Do you order the plasma heparin or the MMP, which is found in some biotoxin analysis, but I've seen reports of that. I, I get that for people that have mold thing. Uh, are you ordering these tests to... I, I order the mast cell mediator levels that are testable in the clinical laboratory and which are relatively specific to the mast cell. Plasma heparin is included in that list. MMP9 is not particularly specific Mm. uh, to mast cell activation, and I tend not to order that. Okay. And what about CD117 or CD25? Do you know those markers? Or do you need a bone marrow biopsy for them? Well, we typically do not need to do a bone marrow biopsy to diagnose MCAS. It is an important test to diagnose mastocytosis. Mm. But a bone marrow biopsy is almost never helpful uh, mm-hmm. in mast cell activation. Can you measure these in the blood, the CD25? Is that is that uh, accurate enough for you? No, yeah. we typically do not measure that right. in the blood. It's measured in tissue biopsies. It is, okay. So I want to be, uh, the, the, the key point I, I want to get across, right. uh, Dr. Mitchell, is that this is a major diagnosis that is going to have significant impact on the patient's life Correct. for the decades they have left to live, because most of these patients, fortunately, have a normal lifespan. Right. So I'm very hesitant to make a definitive diagnosis of this based on finding just one piece of laboratory evidence that's consistent with mast cell activation for the simple reason that any test, I mean, even here in 2020 in our high-tech era, any one test can be abnormal once by chance or error. Of course. So what I typically look for are multiple points of laboratory evidence suggestive of mast cell activation together with the history that is consistent with chronic multi-system mast cell activation. Fair enough. That that's how I okay. uh, get to a doctor. Okay, I just want to you know. So obviously, you're saying clinical with your specific. You like to see certain markers. Okay, let's get on to the treatment because again, I know that's what obviously listeners who who may have this condition or think they may have this condition want to know. Well, is there any hope for me? Can I get better? And well, I have several messages on that score. Okay. Um, number one. Again, most people who have this disease seem to have a lifespan that's equivalent to that of the general population. 
which is a whole lot better situation than you got with an awful lot of other diseases, which on average would cut the patient's life short. The, now, now it is a chronically symptomatic life, but the, the point of this good life expectancy, the point of this message is that even if it winds up taking a long time to find the particular treatment that's best going to help the individual patient. Nevertheless, the patient is highly likely to continue surviving to get to the point where they finally have effective treatment identified. And at that point, they can have a much better quality of life for the remaining decades of their life. So that's one important point is that life expectancy tends to be good. Number two, point number two, is, and this is kind of this may be kind of surprising to your listeners, given that we've only known about this disease for about a decade or so. But it turns out we've already got a boatload of drugs which have been found helpful in various. It's always better to have more options rather than fewer options. So this is good news. Point number three, at least in my experience, most MCAS patients actually do manage to eventually, I mean, some patients sooner, other patients later, but eventually identify some mast cell targeted regimen or cocktail usually highly unique to the individual patient that actually does get the patient to the goal of feeling significantly better than the pre-treatment baseline the majority of the time. You can't cure it. You can't make them feel perfect. You can't make them feel better 100% of the time. But most of the time, you can get the patient to the point of feeling significantly better than the pre-treatment baseline the majority of the time. So all that's good news. The big frustration the big challenge at present and likely to continue this way for years to come is that the state of the science in this area is so immature that we don't have even a single method yet for reliably predicting which of these many, many, many treatments which have been found helpful in various MCAS patients is most likely going to benefit the individual patients. And therefore, there is no shortcut to both the patients and the treating physician right. practicing an enormous amount of patience and persistence. And Okay, but let me ask you your approach, because I, I like to put doctors on the line here. So the bottom line is, yes, there are a lot of medications that are safe. They have a long history, antihistamines, uh, chromin sodium, leukotriene antagonists. Okay, so if you were to see a patient, I'm just curious for your approach, would you shotgun and give them the kitchen sink, antihistamines, chromium sodium, and leukotriene to begin with? Or would you do stepwise where you'd say, okay, let's do a month of antihistamines. That doesn't work. Do we add on something or do we just completely transition? I'm, I'm curious about your experience because you, you again, Mast cell activation syndrome patients, as I said, yeah. are likely to live a normal lifespan. Right, they will have the time. And furthermore, they have been living with their disease for decades. Right. They have learned to deal with it. 
And so I have learned the hard way. It often is counterproductive to make multiple changes in a mast cell patient's regimen around the same point in time, because then when they get either better or worse, you're going to have no idea which of the multiple changes is actually making them better or worse. And it's usually a holy mess to try to sort it out at that point. So I understand there are times in a patient's life, urgencies and emergencies, where the patient and the doc have no choice but to make multiple changes in the regimen around a given point in time. But for most patients, in in the great majority of circumstances, they have the time to make one change at a time. And almost every drug that makes sense to try for this disease, we figure out in no more than a month whether that drug is going to be significantly helpful for that patient or not. Is so it also I'm targeted? I want to this in stepwise fashion. Okay. Is it also targeted to, depending on what's their main? Symptoms. So, for example, if it's gastrointestinal, do you go to something like gastrochrome, chromium sodium, which I believe is super expensive now, but do you find that effective? Well, oral chromalin is super expensive solely in the United States because of the way that pharmaceutical manufacturers right. That's another have whole thing, chosen that drug. It's actually very inexpensively available. But do you use it? Do you use it with patients? If they, you don't I, get it in Canada I or someplace. I use chromalin in many patients. I use many other types of drugs too. Well, let's say you had a, stomach, let's say you had a patient with, which, let's say this orthopedist that I was talking about, he was taking antihistamines. His bowel issues were significant, bloating, you know, whatever, some diarrhea. So what would you I, do for I him? I counsel my patients to take the following approach. Step okay. one in managing this very complex illness, not only now, but for the rest of the patient's life, is going to be to identify their triggers as precisely as they can and do their best to avoid them for the simple reason that it is actually kind of hard for any drug to gain good, sustained control over dysfunctional mast cells when the patient is simultaneously and persistently ingesting or otherwise exposing himself or herself to a trigger. Over time, as the patient gains better control over the disease, they may well regain some measure of tolerance to things which previously had become intolerable, but that's over time. To begin with, identify their triggers as best they can and do their best to avoid them. That's step one. Step two is to identify their optimal antihistamine regimen, by which I mean a combination of a non-sedating H1 blocker together with an H2 blocker. And I have learned that different patients respond differently to different H1 blockers and different H2 blockers. So it usually is best in the long run for the patient to systematically try each of the several different H1 blockers available on the market as well as the different H2 blockers on the U.S. market. Because if they're going to be on antihistamines for years to decades to come, they might as well be on their best antihistamines, and it is different. 
what the best products are from one patient to the next. This is part of how variably the disease behaves from one patient to the next. Let me ask you this too. You work in a functional medicine practice, right? I know you're with... Uh, uh, you're with it's Armonk Integrative Medicine. Our integrative Medicine, sorry. Do you recommend ever quercetin or vitamin C or probiotics? Do you find I, that they play a role in these patients? I, I tend not to recommend probiotics a whole lot. I've not seen them bring a whole lot of benefit to my patients, but quercetin is a, a type of flavonoid that is known to be able to help simmer down mast cell activation in some patients. So yes, that is one of the many, many drugs we consider trying in what I call steps three through N. Vitamin C has been found, uh, been published in the literature, to reduce mast cell production and release of histamine. Okay. So at appropriate dosing, uh, yes, vitamin yeah. C also is something to be tried in some patients. Chromalin is something to be tried. Okay. Uh, Catodifin is something to be tried. Leukotriene receptor blockers are something to be tried. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory help some of these patients uh the the list just goes on well, actually on i have i have a special one that i'm going to share with you i don't know if you know this one <laughs> but it really it's quite extraordinary have you ever used sodium bicarbonate or you know aka baking soda for your patients uh, I have never prescribed it for any of my patients, but I have had a very small number of patients who tell me uh, that seems to be helpful. I, I want to tell you something interesting. You know, many, many years ago, because again, in my career, I've, I've gone high and low to places all over the country to train. And many years ago, I, when I was a, actually just out of fellowship, I went up to Buffalo to, to work with a woman named Dr. Doris Rapp, who was very controversial, but she was really extraordinary, very well-trained. She was working with food allergy, children, and especially some of them who were on the autistic range. It was really phenomenal, but she was videotaping everything, and, and she had written many books. But one of the things I learned from her, and then I'll, I'll share with you where I sorted journals, she would give patients with it she called um, Alka-Seltzer Gold, which was essentially just sodium bicarbonate. You know, and I wasn't really, I didn't really understand at the time why she was giving that, but she goes, I give this to them, and their allergic reaction blunts. And many years later, you know, I was reading one of my allergy journals and I was reading a fascinating case history. It was a Japanese patient who was highly allergic to wheat. He would go into anaphylaxis, you know, if he ate bread or whatever. And the Japanese researchers gave him two grams of sodium bicarbonate half hour before they gave him the wheat in the laboratory and it blunted the anaphylaxis. So, uh, and what they described was that, and again, I like to hear your interest in this, is that the bicarbonate changed the biochemical pH. And as a result, the mast cells didn't release because like everything else, you know, cells need certain environment to release, you know, their mediators. So I, I will tell you, I've, I've, I've recommended to hundreds of patients who have severe food allergies, even though I have a treatment for it now with sublingual drops, but I, would recommend them if they're going to a wedding, a party where they don't know where food they're about to eat about a half hour before they take the uh, sodium bicarbonate tablets, they put in a little bit of hot water or they just swallow it. And I'm hoping that it'll blunt their mast cell reactivity. So, well, 
That is one approach. I mean, bicarbonate obviously is antagonizing uh, hydrochloric acid. It's neutralizing acid and raising the pH. And the point is that you probably get to the same endpoint by using an H2 blocker. Okay. which okay. blunts production of okay. acid. Yeah, it just works a little quick. It works very fast. That's the, that's the thing I like about the sodium bicarbonate. It's quickly changing the pH in the stomach, where obviously, especially when I'm dealing with a food allergy. Anyway, I found it to be, it's, it's, it's quite benign, and patients don't mind doing it. So, but interesting. So, well, we have talked about a lot of stuff here. I mean, I, again, I found this fascinating. Again, anytime you come up with a, a new disease that, Doctors, allergists, hematologists, integrative physicians are, are kind of jockeying about who should best treat this. I think it's really fascinating. And I think, again, as you mentioned in your articles, you know, how this could be a lot more prevalent disease that's overlooked. But, you know, in summary, I want for our listeners to know that mast cell activation system is a real disease. It can be easily overlooked. And you may have a lot of symptoms that could be sometimes misdiagnosed as chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, allergic diseases. So to consider this in in your potential condition, lab tests are available that can help make the diagnosis, as Dr. Afrin says, with obviously very appropriate clinical findings. And the, the good news is hopefully diet and medications can have positive influence on the quality of life because, again, as Dr. Afrin mentioned, people are going to live a long life, but you don't want to live a life where you're suffering. And, you know, the help he's provided for patients, you know, attest to that. So, Dr. Afrin, I want to, again, thank you for sharing your experience with us today. I think the listeners and myself have learned quite a lot. Well, it's been my pleasure, Dr. Mitchell. And again, thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.